verses 1 through 7. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Dearly fathers, we have sang how you lead us. We have sang about how great your faithfulness is. Thank you again. It's morning by morning the mercies of God we see. As we open your word now and we see the ways that you have blessed man who rebels against you daily. Help us to see again how good you are in spite of all the things we do on a daily basis, how many times we don't trust you, how many times we trust ourselves, how many times we run from you, yet you are good, and all you do is good. So, dearly Father, help us to see that. In your Son's name we pray. Amen. When we look at today's passage, uh, it's interesting. You're going to find that uh, the Bible answers so many questions. It answers question over question over question. It answers questions sometimes we don't even ask, and that's usually the problem because we don't ask the Bible questions. We just decide we know what to do, and we move on. We don't really dig into Scripture to see what Scripture has to say about it. And it's interesting, I, I enjoy when people ask me questions. Sometimes I get very poorly worded questions, usually in the form of a text, and I'll give you an example of how I get some of these. This has happened to me multiple times since I moved up here. People in the church will say, Tim, do you have this person's contact information? And I'll reply back, yes. <laughs> they haven't asked. What, what should they? And then a couple minutes later, I'll get, may you please send me their contact information. I'm like, oh, now I'll answer the question. You just ask a terrible question. And I answered your question, you know, and they just, I get a, uh, just, a, uh, whatever. Because again, remember, weak questions bring weak answers. So if we don't ask the hard questions, guess what? We won't get an answer. Today's passage, though, we're going to see so many answers on how we are to live in a world as believers. We're going to see answer upon answer upon answer of what the Christian worldview looks like. And we will also see how a world who has rejected a biblical understanding is going to struggle with so many things on how to live when they don't understand what the Bible clearly teaches. And so there'll be so many questions that are there. So let's look at Genesis 9, 1 through 7. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth, upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground, and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I give you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with, with its life, that is, its blood, and your lifeblood I will require reckoning. From every beast I require it, and from every man. From this fellow man I require reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply, team on the earth, and multiply in it. The title of the message is The Creation Mandate Restated, and I would say, and so much more. If you wanted to, it was hard to try to categorize everything that is talked about here. But I want to give us a quick review, though, of where we are at. Okay, so remember, Noah has just gotten off the ark. And when he gets off the ark, the world is not as picture clean as we sometimes in our little minds imagine it. Remember, there has been a worldwide disaster. There are piles of debris scattered all over the place. I'm sure, without a doubt, there is probably even rotting carcasses, the earth is still coming down from a worldwide disaster, 
And remember what Noah does? He takes his food supply and sacrifices it as an offering before the Lord, one of gratitude and one of repentance. And God, seeing this, seeing Noah's heart, made a promise to himself, never destroy all living things on the earth in this same way again. And notice what we also saw in that passage there. That God also stated that man's heart is continually sinful from his youth. So nothing has really changed in humanity other than we have a new family, kind of Noah, starting here. And what is God going to say about Noah and his family? They're going to be sinful from youth. All right, and so now we have a question coming up, all right, if God has already destroyed the world once because of man's sin, right, and now we're entering a time period where what do we know about Noah? He's a sinner too. We got a problem here, especially on the man's side. Like, the wrath of God could happen on you again this way. But remember, God promised it wouldn't happen. And because God promised it wouldn't happen, verse 1 of chapter 9 is really key. But before we get to verse 1 of chapter 9, well, actually, I'll read it. It says, and God blessed Noah and his sons. All right, so God is literally blessing all of humanity right now because there's no one else around but Noah and his sons, all right? And so he's blessing humanity. And you would say, why is humanity being blessed? Because what do they deserve? They are sinful from you. So what should God be saying? It's only a matter of time until we're going to kill you like I killed everyone else because of their sinfulness. But what God chooses to do here is bless them. This is what Paul talks about, and I'll just allude to it, Acts 17, verse 30 and 31, where Paul is talking about there is a time of ignorance that is now over because Christ has come, and now he calls all men to repent. And you ask yourself, what is this time of ignorance? It's not a time of ignorance as in God didn't know. This is a time starting in, in basically Genesis 9 all the way to the cross where you are going to have sin seemingly go unpunished. But what are we going to know on the cross? God deals with this sin that happens from Noah all the way to then is dealt on the cross. And this is what Paul will talk about, sins that were passed over. Because remember, we all know the Levitical sacrificial system of the shedding of blood did not deal with sin. It was a symbolic reminder that one day we need the perfect lamb to come. And God will even say, bulls offerings and all these things are a picture pointing to Christ. And so what we see here is the blessing of God poured out on an undeserving mankind. And even just a side note, the more you truly understand the undeserving sinfulness of man, you see the incredible necessity of the Son coming. So I would argue if you don't understand the depth of communion is because you don't understand the depravity of man, because the depravity of man demands a sacrificial servant to come and die. So here we go, Genesis 1, and let's just start breaking down the text. Now, it's, it's interesting here. We have blessing from God, man is evil. Now, when we understand how God is blessing men and God blessed them, so if you're an underliner, I would underline that because I think this is key for everything else that is coming. That God is blessing them, and when He blesses them, He's going to bless them in several ways. But this blessing is also going to help us understand how the Christian is to view the world around them. Because if we don't understand how to view the world around us, we will not understand anything. And so we have to understand that what God is giving us right now for all of time here is a blessing. So let's walk down through what are the blessings that are given. Because here's the issue. What God blesses, the world likes to say, is cursed. World says it is wrong. God says it is right. And this is going to be the battle. So let's see what we see in front of us here. 
And these are to be enjoyed. So verse 1, and then he books it, bookends it in verse 7. Verse 1 tells Adam, Noah, sorry, Noah and his sons to be what? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, verse 7. And be fruitful and multiply, team on the earth. All right, that's meaning like a lot of you running around. This is not like you all come together wearing the same jersey type of deal. The idea of teeming on the earth is saying like, fill it, be everywhere on it. So the idea of this procreation, point number one, procreation is a blessing from God. So that would mean then all the things about procreation are a blessing from God. So literally, children are a blessing from God, marriage is a blessing from God, and even your family is a blessing from God. Some of you may have just gotten off the holiday season, and you're wondering, is family really a blessing from God? But literally, God is saying, He has blessed you and these interactions you have. So now let's go through these simple things that are just taught in this simple passage. Children are a blessing from God. They are not a nuisance. I'll repeat that all over and over and over again. And I'm talking to you parents, I'm talking to you who do not have children, I'm literally talking to anyone who has a little rug rat running around. All right, children are a blessing from God, they are not a nuisance, they are a gift. They are not to be tolerated, but taught. I want to make sure we're clear on that, we don't tolerate them. All right, the reason why we're sending the kids back is not because they're a nuisance, but because we want to teach them the things of the God at their age-appropriate level. We need to teach them the things of God. But sadly, where is sin going to creep in? Sin is going to creep in because, let's be honest, we're all self-seeking. And sadly, if we're not careful, we see children as a barrier to whatever. It could be a barrier to your silence. It could be a barrier to whatever. I mean, let's be honest, a crying baby can get annoying really quick. At least for me, it can be at times, all right? And we all just want the baby to be what? To be quiet as if the baby doesn't exist. But what do we know from God? That is a gift of God. And you can think, and I, you could just, I mean, these are the things that we go, we're not thinking biblically when the crying baby annoys you because there could be someone else in the room that would be dying to hear their baby cry. So, anyway, we don't think this way very well because we just think it's all about us. And so then kids become a nuisance to your dreams. Kid becomes a nuisance and just fill in the blank. Instead, children are a, we need to see children as a potential influencer of good for the next generation yet unborn. Do we see them as that? Do we see them in the longevity of it all? Children are a blessing from God and we need to treat them as such. Uh, One other key little point. And parent, you are not their savior. I'm going to help you out real quick. I don't care how how you hover over them. I don't care how you groom them to never be hurt. I don't care how many helmets you put on them, knee pads, elbow pads, or whatever. You cannot save your child. Only God can. And we need to remember that. They are a gift from Him, and He holds them. Next, marriage is a blessing from God. And may I put it this way? Because obviously, to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, this is done in the confines of marriage, is what back in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 tell us. That means if marriage is a blessing from God, it is not for society to define it or defend it. It is for the church to define it and defend it. And when I say defend marriage, I think we need to get past this process of we defend marriage, and the church, sadly, many times is so nearsighted on this. So we defend marriage as we a man and a wife, and we go, a man and his wife, okay, 
female, male, okay, that's as far as we get. And I would go, you know how we also defend it? We fight for every stinking marriage there is in the church to keep them together. That's how we defend it, too. It's interesting. I don't care who you read, what psychologist you read, whether they're crazy or not, they can't move this point. The benefits being raised in a home when there is a father and mother creates a stable child. And I'm not making any assessments on anyone who is single trying to raise their children. I would argue that's why God has given you the church. May we be the church to make it. But without a doubt, it is clear across the board. If you also want to read some staggering facts, men that will keep you up at night, you can read the staggering facts of if there's not a father in the home, what it does to the kids far more than a mom not being there. But it makes you almost wonder as if God had planned it that way. Yet marriage, if we focus on ourselves in marriage, and this is one of the marriage tips we tell everybody, if you focus on yourself, your spouse gets in the way. Marriage exposes who you really are and is one of the tools that God has given to sanctify you. Like, I didn't realize how stubborn I was until I got married because I just focused on me. (laughs) Then I get married and I realize I am. Sometimes we say, I was never like this until this. And I would say to you, it's because all marriage has done is unveiled the sin that was already there. And also, too, I'll just say this from this week. Uh, what a crazy week in the Yorgi household that your wife is a gift and a helper. And I'll say to you stubborn men, we need to listen to them. Uh, you can't sleep off your way to a heart attack, all right? You know, like when your wife says, Tim, you need to go to the hospital, guess what you should do? Go to the hospital after a little bit of time of rest to see if you could sleep it off. Next, not only is children a gift, because notice he says, he blesses them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. So that means everything that entails being fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth is what? A blessing from God. So that would mean children, that would mean marriage, and that would mean family. All right? Family is a blessing from God. Here's one of the fun, fun things about when you understand the sovereignty of God, the family God has placed you in is not a mistake. All of your quirks, Quirky family people, you know, that uncle or that aunt, or maybe you are that uncle or that aunt, right, that are in the family, they are there because God has placed you in that family. You are part of a grand story. So no matter the past, it doesn't matter how faithful your family has been in the past, every generation is faced with this question. Will you faithfully teach the next generation the things of God? every generation that is in front of us. And notice even this. Be fruitful, multiply, and do what to the earth? Fill it. Fill the earth. So that would mean by very definition here, man is not the problem on the earth. Man is to actually do what to the earth? Fill it. But if you buy the lie of the world, they would say man is actually a problem on the earth. And if there was less man, the earth would be better. What this is telling us is actually you need to fill the earth. And we'll talk about how we fill it. But let's not buy the lie that it would be better off if we had less humanity. Because literally the creation call here, there is a blessing that comes when you fill the earth. 
But if we're not careful, we can think that somehow humanity is the problem. Next, verse 2. Man's position is reestablished. Look at verse 2. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth, upon every bird of the heavens, upon every creeping thing that creeps on the flesh of the earth. Into your hand they are delivered. Now, into your hand they are delivered is where it's reestablished. Meaning mankind was to rule the world, rule the earth, rule the animal world. Now, there's an interesting thing that was brought into this that we didn't see before. To rule over creation. Now, before the fall... It seems that there is a compatibility between the animals and the sense of men working together. Like the example, Adam is going to name the animals. There was a sense as if the animals came to him to be named. There was also a sense even before this, before the flood even, that the animals, God sends the animals to Noah and he's working with the animals in the ark. Now all of a sudden, this is the first time you see something being placed in the animal world versus the human world. And it says, God is blessing mankind by giving mankind rule, and he's also blessing them by having the animals fear him and dread him. Now, a little side note, all of us deer hunters want to be the one that the deer fear and dread, right? Because they know when you hit the woods, they're dead. But this is not what that type of fear and dread is talking about. What we see here is this fear and dread literally means harmful animals to humanity. What are they going to do naturally? Run from humanity. All right, that's why it spooks us when a harmful animal runs at you, right? Because by nature, bears are scared of you. It's when you corner them, they fight you, all right? Because bears normally run away, all right? And these are the way, this is the way God has created these things to be. It's interesting, too, fear and dread will be this, the relationship with animals. In order for man to use animals, man is now given the ability to rule over them to use the animal kingdom for his betterment. And so when you tame an animal, you are not in somehow hurting the animal. You're actually doing what God has given you the ability to do. Um, animals are also sometimes great examples for us of our own stubbornness as you're working through taming the animal. But those are not bad things. Notice what God says. I have given them into your hands. God, the creator, says to his created being in his image, this is an image bearing of God, here are the animals, I am giving them to you. Animals are ruled and to be used by man, and the reason is that animals are to be ruled over and to be used by man, and the answer is because God said so. Also, this helps us understand this other fact that can be hard for people to understand. Humans are not animals. Animals are animals. Humans rule over animals because God said so. So training animals to help in work, whether it's pulling a team of horses or breeding dogs to help, or it's even breeding certain qualities in animals that you need so you can actually milk them so they won't turn around and gore you to death or other things like this. This is what God has given mankind to do for mankind to use the animal world around them for man's betterment. So then when the world responds who does not have a biblical worldview, quoting a, an organization with the initials PETA, had a statement, they say, there is no rational basis for saying that a human being has any special rights. And here's their famous line, a rat is a pig, is a dog, is a boy. And I would argue back that a boy is not a dog, and a dog is not a pig, and is not a rat. A boy is created in the image of God. 
a rat and a pig and a dog is not created in the image of God. And you say, how do you know that? Literally, the Bible tells me so. So when we look at questions around us of how we're supposed to respond, literally, we need to respond, have you not read? So two things we've already learned from these last two chapters. That global warming will not kill all mankind as it has been predicted to until the Lord returns and has his way. And also now we have a proper view of the animal world and man's relationships. And so if you're wondering what is the proper understanding of man's relationship with the world and the animal world, I would give you this one word, stewardship. You are called to steward. Because if we're called to be fruitful and multiply, the concept of being fruitful and multiply is creating a world where people are able to do what when you leave? Be fruitful and multiply. So you're not to pillage and rape the earth of its resources. You are to use the resources of the earth in a way that generations after you can come. This is how the Bible would treat this in so many ways. Remember when the Israelite people went into captivity, right? And they were in captivity, and they were like, are we supposed to, what are we supposed to do in captivity? Because this is not our home, we want to go home, right? And what did God say to them? Plant fruit trees. We were like, what? Why are we planting fruit trees? Because what does a fruit tree mean? It's going to take a couple of years until you get fruit. So when you plant a fruit tree, what are you thinking of? The people coming behind you. Because you realize that people are coming behind us. Stewardship. Not abusing, but making sure the next generations know how to use the earth for its fulfillment. And this is what I would argue is a proper understanding of environmentalism in the Christian worldview. How do we understand the environment? We need to be stewards of it. And we need to teach our kids to be stewards of it because literally, as we have sang multiple times, this is my Father's world. And if we are image bearers of Him, we need to treat it as such. Next, verse 3, another blessing from God. is God has given us food. Every moving thing that lives on the earth will be food for you. If you're wondering what you can eat, literally the answer is every living thing. Now, I don't know if you'd want to eat every living thing that moves on the earth, but what does it say? What's available for you? Every living thing that moves. Man is given the ability to eat it. This is, so we see two areas. We see plants and animals mentioned in this. Green plants and animals. Now, whether you choose to live a lifestyle for dietary reasons, to be either the vegetarian or vegan or any of those other things, you are doing it for dietary reasons, and I would argue you're not doing it because the Lord commanded you to do that. If you choose to do that, that is what you are choosing to do. So those who eat plants can eat plants to the glory of God. Those who eat steak and a salad can eat steak and a salad to the glory of God. And nor should we look one way or the other at each other. Notice also, too, not even in the eating here, but we see it has been blessed that the enjoyment of food, the sheer fact that God allows our refilling of our bodies to be something to enjoy. Now, when you're on diets, it's not necessarily the most fun thing that you get to enjoy, and you just like to watch other people enjoy their food. But the idea of eating is something that, I mean, think through this. We could, God could have created a world, if he chose to, to make eating be like when you fill up your car. You just put the thing in and away it goes. But God has actually said here are flavors and textures and all these other things that not only am I giving you. And notice it's not because man deserves it. Let's go back through this. Because what is man doing to the Creator every day? Rebelling. And God says, not only am I going to bless you in all these other areas, I'm even going to bless you in how you refuel and get more energy to go after me again. 
Like when you sit there and, you know, sit there and rub your fingers together and go, how are we going to go after God more? God says, here's some food to enjoy while you're thinking about it, which it should be a rebuke to us of like, you knuckleheads, right? But no. May I also say, though, the enjoyment of food is wonderful, but what do man start to do? We, we, if we're not careful, can become gluttonous, right? And what God says, show restraint. I would also say, too, as we see the blessing that God has given us, this is why it is a really great practice. Now, again, there is, there is no, um, like, if you don't do it or not one time, you have committed an unpardonable sin. But one of the reasons why we pray and thank the Lord before we eat is to remind ourselves of this food came. Why? Because this is a blessing from God that he gave us the strength to do this. So that's why it's important to, before we go to eat, to pray, all right? Now, we don't go to the legalist side. If I didn't pray, I'm going to get sick over the food I just ate or something else like that. No, we do these things as a reminder saying, God, you are the one that from all blessings flow, even the blessing of eating that we're about ready to do. And notice next, it's an interesting thing here. And some, I love listening to all the guys who, who, who study ancient times and everything with this last part here. Notice it says, um, but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And you're going, what is going, I mean, like, what's happening here? So let's just say what the Bible says. Man cannot eat meat that still has its blood in it. All right, this is what the text, I'm summarizing what it literally just said. All right, so then you go, what's going on there? All right. And so to give you an example, and this is, you'll see this in the Levitical Law as well. Do not eat animals that are, un, that are living or uncooked. All right, so you go, what in the world living? Well, there was a practice that you, well, I can understand why this practice didn't happen too much longer. But as people would be moving in the nomadic world during those times, they would have animals dragging things. And there was a pr- very pagan practice that one of the animals, let's just pick an oxen at the time, they were hungry. And they could just cut off a chunk of the live oxen, eat that, and let it start to heal over. And they would just let the oxen keep going to keep it alive because we don't have refrigeration. We don't have, we're just going to slowly eat our way through the animal. Uh, in my mind, I'm like, wow, that sounds like cruelty, and that's why God is commanding, don't do that. All right. Then on the same time, too, if you sit there and say, no, I don't believe God has what's best for me, then I would encourage you to go home and eat raw chicken and pork to the glory of God, and we'll see how well you're doing by the end of the week. Um, you will find out real quick that this is God's protection right, over you to go, this is not a wise thing to do. All right, cook your food. Basically, he's saying because again, these are blessings from God. Cook your food. All right, I won't. We won't go off on sushi and things like that. All right, but I would say cook your food is what God is commanding us because He is also teaching us that there is life in the blood. Then we will find that illustration even further. Next point number four here. What we're going to see here as well is that man's life, the value of man's life. Man's life is intrinsically valuable. And notice what it says. If you kill human life, your life will be taken as well. Verse 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. And it's interesting as we go through this here. This is literally where we get the God-given concept of corporal punishment. That... If you murder someone, you have literally forfeited your right to live. This is what the Bible is teaching here. This is not anything other than talking about murder of someone. You murder someone, you have forfeited your life to live. Human, and the answer is why, and it tells us, 
because human beings are image bearers of God. So then, the obvious, thou shalt not kill or take a human life carelessly, is clearly taught here. This is where we're going to get this in one of the commandments when we see. Now, notice it's saying that you need to take life very seriously. Not only, and we'll talk about the death penalty and things like that for a moment, but before we do that, though, the idea of human life, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. This literally is where we get the, the phenomenal teaching and understanding that unborn life as well as the elderly have intrinsic value because they are literally image bearers of God. So we treat all with the respect of an image bearer of God. And I would argue and it must happen here in the church first before we ever expect the world to follow. And so the questions that we have to say, and one of the things what I would say we force ourselves to do this. This is why when we try to have gatherings and when we eat, we try to say, those who are older, go ahead and we'll let you decide where you stand on the older world. But what we're trying to do is teach the youngers that, no, you don't need to run right up there and get food. Respect your elders. And guess what we're asking the elders to do? Respect those who are coming behind you as well. And this mutual respect that we have for each other, this encouragement of each other, is key and huge for us to understand. So, when we come to questions like this then, because the world likes to ask questions, and they will say things like this. So we're supp- all image bearers are in the image of God, right? Every human being, they say, you've just said that, and there's your Bible verse to prove it. And they will make a statement like this. So we have this pregnancy where the mom's life is at stake and the child's life is at stake. Who do we save? And the biblical answer is that's a horrible question because that's not the biblical answer. The biblical answer is you fight for both lives because both lives are intrinsically valuable. Because that's not our job to determine whose life is more worthy to be saved than the other. We fight for both of them with our last dying breath. Because God is the one who determines those things. Again, we don't need to go down some of these paths because I think the Bible is pretty clear on these things. And so then we come to the death penalty. What do we do with that? Some may oppose it and say, well, you've already had one person die. That's bad enough. Why make it two? Right? And so it gets our, our tears, jerk, reaction to it. And I would say, I think we need to look back at the text. Because I think so many times we remove God out of the focus and we, put, we read verse 6 like this. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. And if that's how we read that verse and we do not understand the remainder of that verse, we go to the part and say, well, one person's already died, why make it two? But here's the reason the text gives us. The reason God gives for the death of the, of the murderer is because you're not just assaulting man. When you kill somebody else in murder, who are you assaulting? God. Because you've assaulted the image of God. This life is, is the image of God that you have now murdered. Turn with me to Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13, we'll start in verse 4. Actually, we'll go back up to verse 3. 
So it's a, we've already established that God has appointed authority. Verse 3, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good and you will receive his approval. For he is a servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he who does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God. The avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. I mean, think through that for a moment. What is authority's rule? To not take the sword in vain, they are accountable to who? To God, because God has placed them in authority. And so I would also argue that would mean then a failure to deal with those who are murdering the image bearers of God is a failure for authority to actually do what their God-ordained job is to do. So when we do not put people on death row who have been convicted of murder and do not give them the punishment that they have earned by their actions of forfeiting their right to life by murdering someone else, authority is not doing their God-given job. And I think we need to say that as boldly as possible because literally the text is telling us what is their God-given job to do that. Now, I want, before we are callous, though, I want to make sure we don't become callous that now Tim's saying our job is to go out and make sure everyone who's on death row dies. I want to make sure we're clear on that. But here's what we do, though. We need to start understanding that what, is, what does our life look like? Do we take life that seriously? And do we take punishment for those who do wrong that seriously? Because if we do what we have been called to do in our areas, when God places you in another area that may be having some very difficult questions and things to consider, if you're not faithful in the small, you will not be faithful in the big. And so we see here, now, we are never to sit around and be so wonderfully thankful that people, all right, another murderer died. We never rejoice over that. Our heart should break and weep over those things. Our heart should be ones where we say, Lord, come quickly. Because literally, man is sinful from birth. <laughs> all right, And we live in a sin-cursed world. But there are certain things we say, but because what you have called us to do, to do is because this is an assault against God and God himself. Now, that being said, it's interesting, though, for those of us who wrestle with corporal punishment, notice where corporal punishment is tied to. The image-bearing of God. That would mean it is a creation argument. That would mean corporal punishment spans all time. It is not just for at one time, it is for all time. It is not to be entered into with, without an understanding of this. And I would argue some of the the founding documents of our country understood this. This is why we had trials. This is why we had juries. This is why we had judges that have to make these decisions. And so guess what we should do? We should pray for those who are judges. Pray for those who are on juries. Pray for those that they make wise decisions because what are they dealing with? Image bearers of God that they have to make these decisions with. That's why we need to pray for those who are in authority, those who carry the weapons, to have to make life literally changing decisions on the fly as they're entering into a room and there's people all around and they have to make decisions spot on, right, and the, the, the way we live in this world is they have to be right 100% of the time as they're moving through. And so we need to pray for them. Also, I want to make sure we're clear on this. I don't care what Mr. Darwin says because he does not believe God of the Bible that animals are not just a little bit less evolved human being. The Bible's pretty clear here. Animals are not image bearers of God. So then, 
when we read articles that compare the Holocaust, the killing of millions of Jews, and try to put on the same level every Thanksgiving that was happening to the turkeys of America is the same thing that happens to the Holocaust, we would sit there and say, I'm sorry. That is not true. You know, we don't need to, I'll be honest, like a, a turkey doesn't need to be pardoned. We need to be pardoned from our sins. <laughs> I, you know, I guess what, by the way, any of you know what happens to that turkey very shortly afterwards because of the way they're bred? They're going to be dead. They die within a week or two after the president pardons them, which shows his power to pardon goes no further than a couple of weeks. Anyway, because by nature, what are we going to know? They're going to die too. That is why we need Christ's pardon to give us eternal life. So what did we learn today? And I want to let you know, we skimmed through this. I was a little busy this week, so I didn't get to go through as much of this week. There's a whole lot more in this text of biblical understanding of the world that we need to read and need to fully embrace. Because there's so many things that the, that the crazy, sinful world tries to say, you need to think this way, and the Bible literally says, no. Like, it's right in here. These are blessings from God. And so we say, what did we learn today? God has truly blessed man. I'm going to help you remember, not because of man, But I would say in spite of man, but because God is good. And everything he does is a gift from him. And so we see these things. I mean, you could read through this over and over and over again. It was interesting, after we got done on 822, someone said to me, whenever I run into a believer who's running around scared to death about global warming, I want them to read 822, and I'm going to tell them, then why don't you read that one more time, and can you just read that one more time? And how about will you read that one more time? Because guess what they should calm you down about? God's got this. All right, now let's go to the blessings that God has given us. Where the world is scared to death about resources, scared to death about these things over here, and you're going to say, let's be wise stewards and give and do what God has called us to do, enjoy what God has called us to do, but do it in a God-honoring way. I mean, this is what we've been called to. But remember the pendulum, we love to swing. We love to say, if the world says this, where do we have to go? The exact opposite, right? So if the world says don't kill animals, we're going to kill as many as we can. And you go, that's not what the Bible tells us to do. The Bible tells us to be what? Wise stewards of what God has given us. He has entrusted you with us. Rule it as he would rule it. Look to him as your example. And Caleb's ass, he's, he's going to lead us in this, so I won't lead us in this. But uh, we're going to sing the doxology at the end of the service. And the doxology of the service reminds us to praise God from whom all blessings flow. Do we truly believe that? And as we go out and as we live and move and have our being this week, are we truly content that He is the one, that all things flow? So when you go home this afternoon and as you're sitting there ready to eat, I pray that if, if you learn nothing else, that you take that prayer for lunch today with a little bit more seriousness of reminding yourself of how good God is to you. By the sheer fact that here's where you're doing. You're sitting down that you actually have food to eat. You actually have clothing on. You actually have a house, depending on where you keep your temperature, that's somewhat warm that you could be in. All right. The sheer fact that you have food, and most of you have enough food for tonight too. I'll just throw that out to you in your house. Probably you have more canned food than you know what to do with, all right? And you lo- start looking around and you start seeing of all the blessings that God has given. And then you think, wait a minute. What did Tim just remind us of? None of this we deserve. It's all a gift from him. Now, 
I'll say this quickly. This last week when I had a lot of time looking up, waiting for people to come in and poke me one more time and take more blood, I'm like, I'm running low here, people. Uh, there was a lot of thinking that I had to go through. A lot of moments where you're like, well, this, this, you know, Thursday morning, if I didn't have my helper with me, could have looked a whole lot different than what Thursday morning looked like. And there was a lot of time, because I'd already finished the sermon, that's why it's a little bit easier to preach this one, because we had finished the sermon before this, about the blessings of God. And how many times, while I sat there complaining that they were taking one more test, and my helper would say, we're complaining that they're trying to figure out what's wrong with you, in so many words, that we actually have tests to figure out what's wrong with you. We actually have a hospital people that care enough to figure out what's wrong with you, and that we actually have the ability to figure out what's wrong with you, and they didn't say, go home and figure it out. But I'm sitting there complaining that they're not doing it fast enough, right? And then the next day where it takes forever to leave, and I'm sitting there wanting to get out of there so quickly, instead of going, look at the things God has blessed us with. It happens all the time. So I'm praying you learn from my examples because we're about ready to take communion. And guess what communion is a reminder of? The incredible blessings of God. That while you were yet sinners, he died for you. So let me pray. Dearly Father, you have blessed us beyond measure. Our cups are filled to overflowing. Great is your mercy, great is your faithfulness, and may we truly grasp that. Help us now. In your son's name we pray. Amen.